Hi, I'm Vivian Wang, co-founder of the Wiser Podcast, where we continue to have discussions about women in surgery with Emory surgeons, in addition to interviewing surgeons beyond our local community. Hi there, Alex Speak here, producer at Wiser. Just chiming in to let you know that we've officially launched our fundraising campaign for this season of Wiser. We are so proud of the conversations we've been able to share through the labor of love that is this podcast. And we have big dreams for the future. To support, we're selling lapel pins, masks, and tote bags, all with the Wiser logo. To learn more, you can visit our website, wiserpodcast.com, or head to our GoFundMe, which we'll link to this episode. We look forward to seeing you sporting your Wiser gear. Welcome back to season three of the Wiser Podcast. I'm Vivian Wang, co-founder of Wiser. After going through years of medical school, followed by who knows how many years of residency training, and then maybe some fellowship training, how do you go about finding your first job? It's the first time you don't go through a standardized application process. When I went through it last year, it seemed very nebulous. My co-hosts today have prepared an episode to help you navigate the job market and find the right one for your career. Hi there, my name is Rema Rindler. I'm a chief resident in neurosurgery at Emory University. I'm here with Razan Faraj, a medical student in the MSCR program at Emory as well. We're thrilled to interview Dr. Kimberly Wong, who is an assistant professor of neurological surgery at Emory University. Dr. Wong went to medical school at The Ohio State University, completed a residency in neurosurgery at Duke University, and a fellowship in spinal oncology at the MD Anderson Cancer Center. She joined Emory to begin her first academic appointment. Dr. Wong, happy to have you on this podcast today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rima. Happy to be here. Let's talk about how we first met so people understand that we go way back. I actually met you when I was a fourth-year medical student and you were a PGY2 at Duke University. I was visiting Duke for my one-month sub-I to get a better understanding of what neurosurgery was about. And I remember you distinctly in particular because you impressed me with how you comported yourself among your peers and your upper levels, and you just knew your stuff. You joined the, the faculty at, of neurosurgery at, at Emory within my last couple of years of residency training. It's been really great to have you and to reconnect and to do things like this. Thank you, Rima. That's so nice of you to say. I remember you as well. I definitely didn't feel like I was comporting myself well at all when I was at PGY2. <laughs> Tough time in neurosurgery residency. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what led you to neurosurgery in the first place? I originally am an engineer. My um, undergraduate degree is in engineering. And I went to medical school to challenge myself and see if it fit with my overall career goals. Fast forward to when I was a PGY3, I did not know I wanted to be a neurosurgeon at all. I thought maybe I wanted to be a general surgeon. And I did my neurosurgery rotation actually just to learn how to scrub into the OR so I'd be prepared for my general <laughs> surgery rotation. Nice, nice primer. Yeah. <laughs> I really didn't know that much about neurosurgery and I thought it was very competitive and hard to get into. I didn't plan this out either, but I'm actually a really good case study in women supporting women getting into neurosurgery. So our old program director is one of the first females in neurosurgery, Carol Miller. And she was the program director and she uh, sought me out after I did my rotation. She's, I think you'd be a great neurosurgeon if you wanted to. And I really had not thought about it until then. 
So I thought about it. I was still intimidated, but Dr. Miller walked me through it and she really encouraged me. I owe everything really to her. Well, now you're impressively an academic neurosurgeon. Tell us a little about how you got here. What kind of career did you envision for yourself as you uh, went through uh, residency? Yes. So unlike a lot of my colleagues who have known that they want to be a neurosurgical oncologist when they're like three years old, I'm not like that at all, obviously, based on what I told you previously. And so my path in neurosurgery has been very similar. It's, I think there's a line in a television show that I heard that was like it's a ser- the next step in a series of random steps. And that's what it felt like. I've always been heavily guided by my mentors, as I alluded to. I'm looking at a spine job, potentially, because I came from Ohio State and I had some fantastic spine mentors there. And then I went to Duke for my residency, which, as many people know, in neurosurgery has a strong tumor focus. And I ended up really connecting with the tumor surgeons there and the tumor patients, primarily at the brain tumor center there. And so my focus started to change as I did cases and took care of patients and thought about how my engineering background could fit into my academic focus. One experience led to another. I was able to find a research opportunity that could marry my engineering interests and robotics with tumor and oncology. And that's a kind of rare thing in neurosurgery. And so without all of these various aspects. I don't know that I would have necessarily ended up in oncology, but by the end, I ended up loving what I do, which is primarily brain tumors and some spine tumors as well. At what point in your residence do you think this all crystallized for you? (laughs) Yeah, it has to crystallize by the end because you need to have a pretty good plan as you finish towards the end of your residency. I would say that it finally all came together as I was preparing for my research year. I really had to narrow down on my subspecialty focus and then what my academic aspirations might be. I wasn't completely sold on academic surgery at that point, but I was looking at uh, my various attendings and other people I knew in the field and getting a feel for what their day-to-day lives were like. As I investigated that, I began to understand better what I wanted to do. So that was for us around PGY4 year. And I think that's a good time because about a year or two before you have to go and look for a fellowship or a job is when you should be solidifying things. Ideally, throughout your entire residency, you're building your resume to get to what your ultimate goal is. But of course, I think the first couple of years is you just figuring out what portion of whatever surgery you're doing is the most interesting to you. So I think if you have a one to two year lead time before you graduate to really have your plan in place that would be a good time to figure out what exactly you want to do, whether it's private practice, private academic, and then, you know, what subspecialty if you need to subspecialize. How did you decide to pursue the job that you ended up getting? Was it because you wanted to be an academic neurosurgeon or because you liked neuro-oncology and that's where the kind of work that you wanted to do actually would come to fruition? Yes, In academia, the jobs for a neurosurgeon, especially when wanting to do tumor, can be a little limited. There's a wide variety of jobs that are available, and sometimes you have to find which portions of the job are most important to you. So the reason I ended up at Emory was actually it turned out to be my dream job, but I ended up looking at lots of jobs that had some component of what I wanted. And that was during my fellowship year, which was primarily when I did most of my job search. I did a little bit during my chief year, my sixth year, because we were a six-year program. But it really crystallized when I was in fellowship. 
I primarily wanted to do cases that I liked and patients always draw me back into tumor surgery and they are the heart of what we do. So I needed to be able to connect with brain tumor patients on a regular basis and then also to do interesting tumor surgery with a focus in mapping and intraaxial lesions. And then of course, I have a very unusual in neurosurgery researcher interest, and that's a hybrid of engineering and robotics and device development. So it was also important for me to hopefully be able to find an institution that had a strong engineering school associated with it, which we obviously have here at Georgia Tech, which is phenomenal, one of the best schools in the country. The other thing I looked for, which was very important to me, was a culture that was supportive. I always thought that your partners are very important when you become an attending, much like your co-residents and your attendings are very important when you're a resident. And so I really wanted to have a good senior partner, if it was possible, or senior partners who would help me navigate the first couple years in practice. And I was so lucky to be able to find that here. I just secured a fellowship and I'm embarking on finding a a job myself and likely in academics as well. You and I have talked about that job postings, especially in academics, are extremely hard to find. A lot of it is by word of mouth. By the time they're published, they're likely taken. How did you look for positions? How did you advertise yourself? What kinds of things would you recommend to somebody like me who's just starting this process? If you are looking specifically for an academic job or hybrid with some academia uh, focus to it, um, it is a little different than a a private job where you may be um, approached by a headhunter. Mm -hmm. There were a few jobs that I did actually hear about because they were posted through WNS or CNS's job boards. The best jobs, though, are probably ones that come from word of mouth through, in my case, mentors I had back in residency. A lot of people asked me, what did you get out of fellowship? And honestly, it was job placement was a huge component from fellowship. They went to a place that had multiple cranial attending. They're very used to hearing about jobs and spreading the word. The Emory job, which I love here, um, came from my co-fellows. So I always tell folks who are starting out on the, the job search is to find out who else in the nation is co-fellows with you. If you don't have co-fellows at your institution, you'd be surprised how much that helps out because you can let them know about what's happening at your institution and they can let you know if there's someone in your specialty is leaving at places they know. So it's a lot of going back to your old networks or friends you've made over the years. I think the way you market yourself is understanding what your strengths and your weaknesses are as an applicant and focusing on your strengths. I always say to prepare your CV, of course, and then a letter of intent or a cover letter that highlights for you the three main areas that a position may look for you. So that would be your clinical or operative capabilities and what makes you different and special. What will you bring to the program? What are your research interests? And then what are your education or leadership things that you will bring? And if you make that a very simple one-page document, it allows people to not have to look at your CV and see the high points. I also encourage folks in neurosurgery to really utilize, although it's funny because we're in times of COVID now, but to utilize the national meetings when they do come back. Mm-hmm. Um, we go to CNS usually in the fall. And at that point, if you can at least have set up some meetings to just meet with folks so you don't have to travel all over the country and you can get a feel for the program, the chair, or whoever's doing the hiring, and they can get a feel for you, that one was a really nice way to meet a lot of people and decide if we both wanted to mutually pursue doing a more in-depth interviewing. That's a really great point. A lot of that applies to looking for a fellowship as well. Actively going to national meetings, whether or not you have the opportunity to present is a worthwhile investment. Cold emailing people or having 
your program director or other attendings connect you with certain people at other programs was a really great way for me to find potential fellowship opportunities that otherwise I, I would certainly not have been able to find on the internet. I also think a lot of people feel weird about cold emailing folks. And I certainly did when I started out until I found out that everybody does it. I actually got a couple of great potential opportunities by cold emailing. It'll just be a low return rate, but I still think that a few job offers can come from that, or at least a few um, interview offers. I actually obtained a Kaiser job for general surgery slash MIS surgery, so a little bit different. I was looking more for a hybrid position where I'd still be able to teach medical students and residents, but not necessarily be in an academic appointment where my promotions would be tied to publications and things like that. I had the opposite problem because my fellowship directors would get calls from other places because they knew my fellowship directors. but. They were mostly academic jobs. I utilized my co-fellows that I had met on the trail and also the reps at my institution. So the robot reps, whatever reps you guys tend to use in neurosurgery, if they knew, hey, I'm looking for a job in this particular city, they would reach out to their reps in that city because a lot of times those reps have been talking to surgeons there and will know if there's any position to fill. Absolutely. I hear the spine reps do a lot of that for those of folks who are interested in spine since they tend to have a closer relationship with the rep. So Dr. Wong, along those lines, how many jobs did you actually look at? How many jobs did you apply for? How many did you interview at and how many did you actually seriously consider? Honestly, every time I heard about an interesting program that I hadn't really thought about before, maybe there was an opening that word of mouth got around to me in a place I never really considered, maybe as a resident, but might be a great faculty position, I would email out or use my contact. If one of my former mentors knew a person, I'd say, I'm interested. Do you know who's the best person to talk to? I would say probably close to 50 for places that I reached out to in various ways. I ended up interviewing at, I think, five or six places an easy way to avoid yourself traveling all over so that you're not taking away from your experience either as a chief resident or as a fellow is to get onto the phone and just talk with people about what they're expecting. For us, a lot of times there's two interviews involved depending on the interest of both parties. Mm -hmm. I ended up doing two interviews at three places that I seriously considered. Some of it is just a timing thing because some places are looking at different points of the year than others. And that can be tricky from getting offers. And do you keep an offer? Do you take the first offer you get? And then do you wait and see if somebody's actually going to make you an offer, but they're just on a different timeline? It was three jobs that I seriously considered. How long of a process was that for you from start to finish? When I started it, I think myself and all my co-fellows, we were a little bit anxious because we're so used to, this is when the application cycle opens. This is when it closes. You're going to hear back invites from everyone within one to two month time frame, And then you will know by this date where you're going to go. And not having that standardized process, I think was very anxiety provoking for people. So what was that like for you? You bring up a great point, Vivian. I think we really started in earnest job searching immediately when we started our fellowships. And I actually was the last of my co-fellows to sign a job offer. And I think I signed end of February, early March. And they were like, Kim, just sign something. <laughs> you have great job offers. You should sign. But I didn't want to rush it. And that is, as you point out, exceedingly anxiety provoking because your friends will be signing things early. Sometimes before even they are 
in their final year and you're like, oh my gosh, I should be signing now and I should have something in place because it takes a lot of stress off. You, I think that comes down to the fact that institutions will be looking at different parts of the year. There's a lot of mobility that we don't appreciate and that can happen at any point of the year. And so it is a balance between what's available now or what could be available in the next couple months that you may not know about. This is something you have to take a little bit of a gamble on. I did end up trying my best to not rush the process and really taking my time to decide, but that meant I had to take some risks where I turned down a good job offer without like a a clear safety fallback. I think we have a lot of anxiety because we envision ourselves being at a place or a job forever. I think the reality is a lot of people move in their jobs, especially in our generation within the first 10 years. We always say neurosurgery probably around the five-year mark. It sounds like you really just have to figure out what your priorities are in looking for a job because there's really no perfect job out there. If there's certain things you're not willing to compromise on because you won't be happy no matter what, you don't really want to be leaving your first job within the first two years if you can help it, ideally staying at least for a couple years. So making sure that you're finding a job that you can be happy in for the first couple years as a starter job and will be a good launching point for your second job, I think you don't want to compromise on that. Dr. Wong, going off of that, what are things that you're willing to negotiate on and what are some non-negotiables? What are some things that you think should seriously be considered for anybody entering to a new academic position? And what kinds of things were specific to you that you really weren't willing to compromise on? Like Vivian pointed out, there's no ideal job, so you have to be willing to compromise on those. I think big picture items you need to be aware of. One of the things you'll always get asked is what's your clinical research mix? And it's always split up into like percentage of your time. And it could be 50, 50, 80, 20, something. So figuring out what's important to you, what you're willing to go to, because more clinical time means um, more productivity and financial benefit to the department. But if research is important to you, you need to find a number, your threshold number that you are going to stick to. If they're saying they want you to be productive and publish papers and you're a physician scientist, but they're giving you a 90-10 job where you're 90% clinical and 10% research, that's going to be really hard for you to fulfill, right? That is going to make you feel unsatisfied no matter what you do. I think another thing that's really important is trying your best to get to know your partners and who you'll be working with closely. Obviously, you're not going to be working with everyone in your department, but making sure that your partners support your arrival. Not to say you can't walk into a hostile situation and take control and succeed. If there's a strong portion of them who do not want your hire um, or do not support your hire, it's gonna. you just have to psychologically prepare yourself for that or try to avoid that. That came up actually when I was looking for jobs. Just because the chair wants you there (laughs) doesn't mean everybody else does. When you are interviewing, the other things that were important to me was to see what the real support was and what the leadership was like. It's good to ask other faculty, do they feel supported? Do they get the resources they need to carry out their job from APP support to financial things for their lab to pursuing outside of work ambitions and organized neurosurgery, all those kinds of things. Some people love to be micromanaged. Some people don't want a hands-off management style. And I think that's actually really important because your leadership sense your tone. Everything else for me falls in those buckets because you'll get the right research support package, startup package, caseloads, volumes, if you specify, I think, those major things. Did you have any interface or any meetings with 
the administrative leaders of the hospital, CEOs, CFOs, any anybody that doesn't work in a clinical environment anymore? And if so, what kinds of things did you ask them? You actually meet a lot of people who are not neurosurgeons. You meet some of your partners, of course, but a good interview process allows you to meet people you're going to work with outside of your departments. And including for me as a, like a, as an oncology person, I got to meet the radiation oncologist I was going to work with, the medical oncologist, other surgeons. So a lot of times I met the head of uh, surgery. And then of course, like you mentioned, administrators, both within our department and outside of our department. It's a change in your interviewing style to both speak to folks about what you're interested in, but then to ask questions and try to understand them outside of your specialty, which we actually don't do a ton of, I think. When I did talk with administrators, it was important to know what they thought about neurosurgery and our priorities within the hospital, how they would value my potential hire, what they thought about my coworkers. Because if you walk into a situation where they already are not great friends with your chair, who's going to be the one talking you up or not talking you up, people are very honest, they'll say something and it's not difficult to pick up on, um, then it's going to influence your relationship with them. Those just allowed me to get some clues as to what neurosurgery's role was and what my potential role might be. Also, what gaps were there? They would often list things that maybe they needed. If you're trying to sell yourself, your department's trying to sell itself. And so having other viewpoints is a good way to see, does everything line up? It's like collateral information. Correct. So you have these job offers in hand. Who besides yourself did you talk to about this? Family, friends, lawyers? Yes. Yes. Family is super important to talk to. I talk to my family. Obviously, your significant other and children need to be definitely on board. A lot of my colleagues who did have significant others did have them go for this first or second interview to make sure they felt comfortable. Everyone, at least in our field, recommends having a lawyer look over your initial contract or we sometimes have letters of intent before we get a formal contract from the organization, which can take a lot of time. And you'll get an initial offer for everything, including your salary, what you're, if you're doing academia, your startup package, which means the money for your research um, endeavors, but also all the little things, benefits, vacation time, ancillary support. Do, will you have an APP in the outpatient world, in the inpatient world? And you can put a lot of things in there. Like I would like to have 50% of all the tumors that come into the ER and then Decide about what's important to you, and that helps guide your negotiations as you go forward, which is another important part of the process, depending on your personality type and what you're initially offered. And that can be very helpful if the lawyer can point out some things that we don't think about. And then when you have the details, you ask your mentors or people that you felt have navigated the process well of finding a job and to have them take a look. Did you find something about the job search or the application or the negotiation, particularly challenging for you as a person, as a woman, as just who you are? Absolutely. The business world highlights it very well. It's a well-documented fact that women don't negotiate as much as a male applicant would. I was well aware of that when I started my job search and I was very sensitive to it. There is some limits to what you can negotiate on. Usually your department chair, although very powerful, is also getting some constraints from administration as to what they can offer. But I think it's important to identify some areas where your package could be better. I made it a goal to try to find at least some things to negotiate about. I'm a non-confrontational person by nature. I did find that once you have a couple of offers, 
and you see what's normal because obviously we're doing it for the first time. We don't really know what's normal and how much are you worth. Once you have other offers, it allows you to be more effective. How did you figure out what the right amount to ask for? We don't want to be taken advantage of and left behind as a woman, but we also don't want to seem too pushy. And especially as your first job, you don't want to get that reputation that you're asking for too much. So where do you find that fine line? And then did you talk to other applicants going through that process to compare packages and see what was, like you said, the normal? Yes, 100%. You have no idea what you're worth when you leave. It is a great idea to talk to at least a few other people who you think are similar to you and looking for similar type jobs. So as a spine surgeon, I'm going to get a different package than I would as like an academic functional neurosurgeon. I basically found other tumor people who are young and who had navigated jobs that were very similar to what I was looking for and asked them honest and somewhat uncomfortable questions sometimes if I trusted them. What were their salaries like? How many cases were they expected to do or RVUs? Um, What were their startup packages like? But I was a little bit on the lower side when I asked for things. I didn't go for the highest number, but it helped me know if something was way off the mark. If you don't get something written in on your first contract, say I have five things I'm asking for, I'm gonna ask for everything that's ideal for me, knowing that some are gonna get denied, but hopefully that means they'll at least grant me some of them. When you did that, which ones did you decide, okay, this can be put off for later. This is something that I likely can renegotiate a couple years down the road versus this is something that has to be in my contract upfront or else I will never get it. Someone once told me in this job search too, that if it's not there on day one, or if it's not written in your contract, it won't be there for the next three years or something like ridiculous like that. So for me personally, I felt very strongly about my research package. My time split was important to me. And of course, you want to be fairly compensated for your work. The things that I thought at the beginning of the process were going to be super important to me that I did not need to have right away. For instance, everyone was like, you have to make sure you have an APP that is dedicated to you and you make sure that's in your contract. And my final job, they were like, we don't use an APP here. We have a nurse and she'll be a shared resource for all of you. She's very experienced, she's very efficient, and she's been doing this for years. And it turned out to be actually quite true. I just asked my senior partner, is it working well? Are there any issues? Should I be worried about this? He was like, no. Sometimes you think, oh, I need to have certain equipment, right? So if you do a ton of endoscopic surgery and you need to have very specific scopes, then you probably need to really put your foot down about that. A lot of times we fixate a lot on equipment and tools. Um, I found that that actually could usually get the job done without having to ask for a lot of capital purchases, which I'll also can make your life or your negotiations a little bit stressful. I have a question about the process of promotion. How does that work? Because I know that is an area where we have a tendency to climb a little bit more slowly. Sometimes there can be challenges to female doctors being able to go through the tenure track or just to be promoted at the same rate. In an academic environment, usually in all of our letters of intent or term sheets, They will provide clear delineations as to what track you're going to be in. And that's usually something that your chairman will discuss with you up front. And if they don't, that's something to bring up. So are you going to be in the clinician educator track? And different names at all institutions. Are you going to be in a pure tenure track, which as a surgeon can be a lot to ask of somebody. Are you going to be in a hybrid track? A lot of institutions have hybrid tracks. Usually a good chair will know that when they're trying to hire you and give you options, depending on what your interests are and your time split. 
I just had them forward to me what the criteria was for whatever tracks I was interested in or eligible for. And then usually there was a very clear one that made sense. It sounds like the things that you should at least consider and think about whether or not it's important for you to negotiate it in your contract or in your letter of intent include your compensation, whether that's average on par for other colleagues who are also starting out in that field with the same kind of training and in that location, because it does vary by location. Your split between clinical time versus research time, if you have any protected academic time. Your OR time, whether or not you get block time. If you need any lab space, flexibility on your scheduling and vacations, call schedule, whether or not they have any disability, other types of insurance that you need to consider, and then other resources like your office space, computers, if you need any extra computers, APPs, nursing help, and then equipment, and then also promotions, what the promotions track is like and their mentoring program in place. Anything else that you consider that we need to add in there? One thing I would add is that at least every institution usually has a pretty blanket policy for FMLA and leave. So one thing I would add is knowing exactly what that policy is. In terms of asking for bonuses, I've heard at academic places, there's not really that much wiggle room on your salary and your bonuses unless you're some very well-known person, highly sought after and much later in your career. It's less likely to have a signing bonus in academia than it private practice. That said, in my particular situation, I didn't negotiate for a bonus. I figured if I was going to ask for anything, it was going to be upfront from a compensation salary standpoint rather than a bonus. It turned out that my department was really nice and found a bonus after the fact, but I did not really focus on that in my negotiations, I'll be honest. And then of course, moving is another thing that can be expensive. A lot of departments will include moving as part of your bonus. I think that's one way you can maybe work a little bonus in theirs. And for the people who are getting ready to go through this process, don't forget that moving bonuses are now taxable. So you have Mm -hmm. to keep that in mind because your tax bracket will be much higher than what you're used to. It's good to know that up front so you can plan accordingly. I have another question. Is there any harm to asking or is there a chance that you can end up not having the job offer? I think it's a very fluid process. It's good to know where you stand in the process. So a lot of jobs were very open with me. We're looking at three people at this time. You are the top candidate, or we're looking at three people this time, and we're all considering you at the same time equally. And so that helps you to understand how competitive you are. If you are the top candidate, uh, then you can ask for more things. But if you're really down at the negotiation stage, you've gotten far enough along. So in other words, it's reasonable to ask but you should also be reasonable in what you're asking for. Correct. What kind of advice do you have for a student or an intern? I told this when I gave a talk to the applicants for Emory's nursery residency. We think a lot about the next step. We're preoccupied with the next step, which is, will I match? And then when you're in residency, your whole existence is preoccupied with, can I take care of these patients and get through this rotation? And you forget that at the end of the line, it is, it is the object to get a job and the right job that you want. And so I think as a student, one, when you are trying to match is to look at what the end outcome and product is. A lot of times we just focus on what's the intern you're like, which is very important. But I think that's one thing students can focus on is what is the job quality like for the people who are graduating or doing their fellowships. If you're in that early stage, look at your attendings and see who you want to emulate, but also whose lifestyle you like. 
and who's got the career that you potentially might like to follow someday, either from a research academic standpoint, from a time split standpoint with how much time they spend with their family or their clinical load. If you start paying attention to your faculty, it will guide your or help you understand what you need to do from a job search standpoint, even if it's early on. We have some parting questions that we ask everyone. In life beyond surgery, what are your hobbies and interests? <laughs> yes. So I used to play a ton of piano competitively, and I gave a lot of that up when I went to school and uh, residency because I just wasn't having a lot of time. And so only recently um, in fellowship and now as intending, do I have more time for that? And then I was never a very active and fit person from a sports standpoint, I'll be honest. I was much too nerdy for that. But it's been good to try to, now we get out, I get out, I run, I hike. And so it's been good to enjoy the outdoors for probably the first time in a long time. What's your favorite song to play in the OR? I love Sinatra, so I, especially for the weekend case, I would love to play Sinatra. But I usually let the staff decide because we need to have happy staff. In these <laughs> Who wouldn't be happy listening to Sinatra? <laughs> Thank you, by the way, for spending an hour with us. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, guys. Thanks very much, Dr. Wong. Thanks for tuning in to today's Wiser podcast. Hope you join us next time for another great interview. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Wiser Podcast or send us an email at wiserpodcast at gmail.com to join our email newsletter list. Thanks for your support and we hope to hear from you soon.